This is a Sunday talk by Todd Corbett titled Angels and Demons, recorded February 21st, 2016, at the Center for Sacred Sciences in Eugene, Oregon. Before I get started with this question this morning, I just want to share a few books that you might find interesting related to this subject. But let me read you the question, first of all. It says... Where does CSS stand on angels, demons, elementals, etc.? Do we ever discuss unseen forces? And I would say that that's all we talk about. (laughs) Um, The books that uh, I think might be useful to you, first of all... uh, this book, now this is an old cover. We have a newer version with a nice, with a couple of pillars on it. It's a little brighter look. But this is called Naked Through the Gate. And this is Joel's uh, original book, his autobiography. And in it, he talks a lot about his, his relationship with Athena, which I will get to in a minute, his uh, dream guy. So anyway, highly recommended. If you haven't read this, it's well worth it. Um, another book, which is also interesting and useful, if you've not had any uh, experience with um, Tibetan practices of Tantra, there's a nice little book. It, it, it just kind of, it's an introductory, but it's very well done. And it talks about the different emotions, which are wisdom energies. It's called Introduction to Tantra, introducing some of the ways of working with energies, and, and, it, and it introduces the idea of deities, and they're kind of magical creatures in Tibetan. And then finally here, I have this book, uh, The Spectrum of Ecstasy, and uh, this is a book which is by Nagakpa Chogyam and Khandro Dichin, and this is a book which helped me on my path a lot. And I was sort of at the, kind of at my wit's end at some point after death, a major loss. Many of us here have these same experiences. And if we haven't yet, we will. (laughs) The spectrum of ecstasy is the spectrum of emotions, which we take to be horrible and afflictive, and we are constantly struggling to get away from them And the more we struggle against them, the more we realize more sorrow and misery. Well, in this book, he talks about how to turn that around and embrace these emotions and to work with them and to transform them into wisdom energies. Very, very helpful. And within just a matter of months of doing these kinds of practices, my grief began to really transform. I was highly motivated, and that's the one thing about grief. If you're not completely destroyed by it, it, it's something that you can't escape. So you have a powerful meditation object. It is holding your attention. No matter what you're doing, it's there. And because of that, it becomes a force for bringing your attention into it and holding your attention there to discover what is actually going on. And this isn't psychological stuff. We're not not dealing with it in a psychological way. Rather, we're coming into the energies themselves and experiencing them as they actually are and, and noticing all the ways that we're trying to escape them and allowing them to be present. So anyway, who's the author again? A guy by the name of Nagakpa Chogyam. N-G-A-K-P-A Chogyam. C-H-O-G-Y-A-M. Thank you. Yeah. And and his wife, Khandra Dijin, but you can find it under his name. Thank you. We have several copies. Yes, we do yeah. in the library. To address this question, where does CSS stand on angels and demons? Well, when we, when we look into 
angels, we discover that angels are really messengers. And demons really are also messengers, although angels, uh, etymologically, uh, that word comes from messenger. And it also has a kind of a root that's tied into loving. So a loving messenger. And there are many examples of this on our paths uh, that we discover. We don't always call them angels, <laughs> but they are some kind of an archetypal image that arises to us that helps us in some way. They're, they're some kind of an energy. They can either take the form of a person in our waking life. They can be a, a benefactor, someone even that we know, and we we feel their energy. There's something about them that even though they maybe aren't speaking with us in this way, we are we are getting something out of being with them and being around them. This can also be uh, in relation to physical places, places that we visit, sacred places. And sometimes, of course, we can associate that with a church or some institution, but it can also be in nature, of course, or it can be really anywhere. And then uh, demons are often, actually our emotions, are often referred to as demons. And when we have a demon operating within us, we can feel very much like we have some kind of creature in there that is just creating havoc for us, causing us to be quite miserable. And then uh, in the Tibetan Buddhist iconography, they have all kinds of things. They have wrathful deities, they have chondros and powers and nagas, and they have deities of the five elements, which is, you know, from this book, they're, the five elements are actually the five wisdom energies or the five emotions. So let me just start with um, a little discussion of Joel's uh, relationship with Athena in his autobiography on his path, because she was really a guiding force for his entire path. She came up initially in a dream, and that was the beginning of his path. And she kept coming up later on as he went through all of his practices and was heading towards something. He didn't know what, but here we have this guide. Now I'm going to read you a couple of sections out of... Uh, Joel's autobiography, just a couple of paragraphs, things that he wrote about her. So, he had this dream, and he had been walking along in a plane, and then he suddenly found himself going up a mountain. He didn't realize he was even climbing this mountain at first, and all of a sudden, he realized he was on a very steep mountain with cliffs and rocks that were just, you know, very, it was very difficult climbing. He had to kind of grab onto cracks and, but finally he worked his way up to the top of the mountain. And when he was standing there, this is what he wrote. The seven continents and seven seas extend before my eyes to a 360 degree horizon. Both the sun and the moon are shining simultaneously visible in the sky one half of which is night, the other day. And the sacred hush envelops the world. Suddenly I become aware of a woman standing at my side, wearing a helmet. She hands me a sword and says, this sword is as bright as the moon and as sharp as the stars, and with it you can cut through the heart of truth. I take the sword and hold it in the palm of my hand, and it feels powerful and good. Then I turn to the woman and ask, Who are you? Don't you know, she laughs gently. I am Athena, and I've been with you always. So she was suddenly introduced to him. He was 
standing at the top of this mountain, surveying the expanse, and suddenly he has the, his guide shows up and gives him this sword. It's like he is on a quest. He is on a journey. And at that point, he knew it certainly. And then later he wrote this about the dream. He said, I marked this dream in which Athena first appeared as the beginning of my quest. I say first appeared because although I never actually saw her again, Athena was to stay with me as a distinct presence or an inner voice. I am tempted to say a personality for the next 16 months, guiding my thoughts, sending me dreams, prompting me to action when appropriate, and restraining me when necessary. At times, as fantastic as it may sound, she even seemed able to manipulate the external world in order to teach me some lesson or another. If she didn't actually control events, she certainly had foreknowledge of what was destined to occur and took advantage of it for my benefit. In all this, however, she never once explained herself, either who she was or what she was about. Everything was in the form of terse instructions, such as, go there, do this, and don't do that. <laughs> so that's pretty powerful. A dream image. And he would have these voices. They would just come up and say, no, don't do that. Do this. And it's interesting because he, he even mentions that at some point he decided, well, you know, I'm, I don't have to do what she says. And he did. And he was sorry he did. He discovered this is a mistake. So he became kind of enamored with her. And at first, when she wouldn't show up for a while, he would think, well, maybe this was just some kind of fluke. And then she would show up again. And then he began to be comfortable when there were long periods when she didn't show up. It's like he knew she would be back. And she was. And she was there repeatedly through his entire path. And then when he finally had his awakening, he never saw her again. So it's just something to contemplate. So this is kind of like an angel. A messenger. A guide. I should probably give a little word of warning here, and I think if Joel were talking about this right now, he would. If you hear voices, <laughs> it's not always a messenger from God. It, it can be something quite the opposite. And it, it, probably the criteria to look for would be, is it compassionate? Is it wise? Is it giving me good advice or is it giving me really bad advice? If, it, if, if the voices are all about ways that you can get what you want, if it's all about me and, and, or, or doing something not so good, not compassionate, is it just guiding me to get stuff in my, in my life rather than being compassionate and concerned for others? Like an obsession? Yeah, it could manifest as an obsession. Yeah, if you notice it's, that it's an obsession, it's probably not uh, a spiritual guide. A true spiritual guide is teaching you wisdom and is compassionate. So this is what you look for on the spiritual path. I wanted to share some experiences on my path of angels and demons. And they're... They're not always clear at the time what's going on, but in retrospect, when I look back at these things, I realized there was a communication taking place, a message, a message that was, was being given to me. And the first one was really the one that got me onto the spiritual path, and it was in 1989. I was down in the, this cabin down in Umpqua, and... It was around midnight. My wife had just gotten home from, she was a nurse, and she had just gotten home from a trauma workshop out in Bend. And so she had just gotten home, and 
she was telling me that there's a beautiful full moon out there tonight, and I went out, and sure enough, wow, it was just so clear and beautiful. And as I was standing in the backyard, you know, because everything was just illuminated, I started hearing this sound up in the woods, far away. I mean, this place is in the middle of nowhere. There's forests all around it, and it just goes on for miles. But I hear this sound crashing up in the, in the distance, and I don't really think much of it, you know. I'm just standing there, but I notice the sound is getting louder. <laughs> and, and it just keeps on building, and it's getting, it felt like it was getting closer. And actually, at one point, it's, it started getting so close that I got back up on the porch and I called my wife at the time, Clavon, and she came out and we stood on the porch and listened and it just got really loud. It was, the crashing was like right, it came right to the edge of what we could see. There was a shadow and we couldn't really see what it was, but it was making all this noise and we started hearing it was breathing. It was like a horse breathing through its nose, you know, and later I thought, well, it must have been an elk that was separated from the herd and, and it was running down the whatever. I had all, all kinds of stories to, to explain this. And uh, so, so as I uh, stood there with Clavon and listened to this, Clavon goes, it's hurt. And I go, yeah, it feels like it's, it's, in, it's really in distress. And, you know, I had like goosebumps. And it was right there, but yet we couldn't see it. And, it. and then it just kind of shifted across, and it always was in the shadows. We never saw it. And then it just sort of faded away. And we just kind of stood there. And then we went inside, and then we went to bed. And about an hour and a half later, the phone rang. And it was the hospital calling to tell us that our son had died in an automobile accident. And the time that this accident occurred was exactly the time that we were outside looking at this, or listening to this, whatever this was, this uh, unseen creature. And, and to me, in that moment, when we realized the time that it was the same time, something happened in me. I just felt like it was him. Somehow, it was him. I didn't really understand in that moment anything about how that could be. And as the days went on, I just kept having flashes of this something about this. And then, in a few days, I had a dream. And in the dream, I was in the backyard calling. His name was Dax. So that was his nickname. <clears throat> and I was calling him, and I was just out there going, Dax! Dax! Where are you? And because I really felt he was lost. Somehow, he was gone, and I had no explanation, and I was really feeling upset. And he wasn't answering, and I somehow expected him to. And this is this I was calling up into the same area where that sound had come from. But now it's in the middle of the day. And it's all lit up. And suddenly I see Dax come down the path, right where that sound came from. And he came up to me. And he got right right up to me. And his eyes were wide, and he just looked so somber. But I was so happy to see him, because I knew that something was wrong. And he goes, Todd, and he grabbed my arm, and he said, nothing happened. Nothing happened. And then I woke up. And that turned out to be a powerful teaching on my path. That his words, nothing happened, actually helped to assuage this feeling that I had, helped to minimize and allow me to be more, because I was just having such severe grief reactions to his death, 
And this is like I had actually connected with him. Actually, he touched me in this dream. And it was a powerful, moving experience. And later, I came to see, yes, nothing did happen. Nothing. Nothing happens at all. And in awakening, we realize nothing did happen. In fact, nothing is happening now. And nothing will happen. It's all just this one divine manifest being, eternal right now. And all of this is just the play of that divinity. So this was like a, for me, at that time, was a powerful teaching. And what was really weird was when I told Clavon about my dream, she said, I had that dream too. And it was basically the same dream. And he, she said that in, in her dream, he came down from the same place and he said, nothing happened, Mom. It's funny how these things just become uh, indelible in the mind. They're solidly inscribed. <coughs> yes. I attended a class some years ago here when I moved to Oregon, put on by Life is Learning in Faith Education. I don't think it's around anymore. It took several courses at that time. We had one class on epiphanies and people talking, a group of, well, I think there might have been 16, 15, 16, and it was very spiritual, and I felt very left out, because in my experience, to me, I've never had an epiphany. Um, And uh, would you call that an epiphany, where they saw distant relatives or a loved one that seemed to appear, and um, I was, you know, shocked that that many people experienced. You see, (laughs) everything that is arising is of the same nature as that. You start to realize that, I mean, it's like we we live in a facade of forms and stories. And as we begin to see through the facade, we realize that all of these manifestations that arise in our life, things that we just, they're just mundane to us, we see they're, they're, they're living truth arising just now. They are the divine manifest. And so everything, you start to see, you start to realize, it's all this beauty. It's this beautiful, eternal manifestation arising always fresh and new right now. So, so even though you've never had one of these, as you deepen your experience of just what you see in your moment-to-moment life, you will start to see these things, these kinds of things, maybe not this one, but you will see into the nature of things, and in that seeing, there is this incredible, deep appreciation for whatever it is. Did that increase with your enlightenment? Where you saw that more clearly? or Everything opens up with, wow. with the way. That's pretty awesome. There's a sweetness in our lives, because you see, we're all already, we're already aware. We can't see it because we have all these stories and beliefs overlaying our our experience. So it's not like we have to do some big movement to somehow discover it. It's really an absence of moving away through thoughts and beliefs. It's really a matter of settling down into our direct experience in this moment and feeling what is arising just now. Feeling our emotions when we don't like something, when we love something, feeling what it is that's arising just now, and not pushing anything away, not grasping anything. And through that process, divine love is showing itself right there, just in the fact that we're not trying to change anything. By not trying to change anything, that's a manifestation of love. We're loving our experience exactly as it is. And in that, then you see, it's like the whole thing catches on fire and it opens. And you see, it's all that. Everything. It's all that. So, Okay. So, uh, that little teaching that I got from Dax, um, nothing happened. Here is Zen Master Singstan, what he has to say about that. He says... Emptiness here, emptiness there. In other words, nothing. 
no thing. Emptiness here, emptiness there, but the infinite universe stands always before your eyes. Infinitely large and infinitely small. No difference. For definitions have vanished and no boundaries are seen. So these kinds of teachings suddenly took on different meanings for me after that dream. So that was a, that was a teaching dream. And it was from that sweet boy, Dax. It's interesting, though, because he was an 18-year-old guy when he died in the accident, but when he came down out of the forest, he was like 10. And it's interesting, because in Clavon's dream, he was the same. He was 10. Very strange. (laughs) You see, there's no explanation for any of this. So, then the next thing I wanted to share was a practice that developed organically for me uh, through all this grief. Because I had, you know, he died, and then um, I had uh, a a 20-year marriage, Clavon and I, we split up, and that was very, that was like a death for me, because, you know, it was, we had, it was such a wonderful relationship until Dax died, and we both reacted so so strongly to his death. So that, that, that relationship fell apart. And then I found the center and I started doing practices at CSS. And Joel gave me a lot of practices to work with grief. And I found uh, this person at the center. Her name was Bonnie Lynn. And she was just, just a sweetheart. And I became very close with her, and uh, I was hoping to have some kind of a relationship. As a matter of fact, I was thinking about, we had been talking about me moving in with her, and suddenly she became ill, and we went to the doctor, and the doctor told her that she had liver cancer, and they did a biopsy, and sure enough, it was liver cancer, and they gave her six months to live, but she only lived for about three weeks after that. So that was just more grief. And then I had, two years after that, I had, I found another girlfriend. You know, I was like, not giving this up. I found another girlfriend. And she, uh, she's, we had a great time. It was wonderful. And it, it felt really good. And But then she came out to visit me down at the place in Umqua. And while we were there, we were down um, on the property, and it had been raining really hard. And suddenly there was a, a, a mudslide, a giant mudslide came down the valley, and she was killed, along with three other people, uh, friends. And so, you see how this goes. This is, like, this is like one of those, you know, really sad stories. And it is sad. I mean, it's, oh. But anyway, so there was this, this thing, and then... Um, that was a, another tumultuous time. But it was after the slide that I began to really break through some of this more deeply. I began to do some serious practice with emotions because repeatedly I kept thinking, okay, I'm getting the hang of this. I'm getting it. Now I, I'm, I'm, I'm dealing with this grief okay. <laughs> These were my thoughts. <laughs> so I'm doing all of these practices and yes I'm I'm you know I was like devastated each time but I'm doing these practices and I'm feeling better but I'm also noticing that I'm trying to not feel my experience it's like because I it just seemed counterintuitive I, I don't want to know that I'm depressed and grief stricken and so I'm doing all kinds of lofty meditations of, you know, seeing things and understanding things. And they are a nice distraction, but after a while, I began to notice that every time I pull out one of those Dzogchen books and start reading, I just felt totally disconnected. It's like, this is, this is missing something. There's something being overlooked here, and... After a while, I began to realize that I have tremendous grief. 
I was being animated by grief. It was, it was everywhere. And when I started to look, I was overwhelmed by what I saw. I, and I kept wanting to distract myself from it, but I didn't. Because I kept seeing that every time I distract myself from it, all it really does is make it harder to see it. It's like I'm, I'm, when you deny something, it, it goes into hiding. But it's still there. You can't really push it away. And so I began to do practices with, of just sitting. And I, I started developing an illness of feeling queasy and nauseated with the grief. And I've been avoiding it. So then I started to allow it to be here. Letting the grief be. And as I began to do this practice, I began to discover the grief, the feeling of grief was like a creature, like something suffering. And I was aware of it. And, it, and it's hard to try to explain that. It doesn't even make sense. And yet... It was perfectly reasonable to me at the time. Because I could see them and feel their pain. You see, it was my pain. But I could see that the, that which wanted things to be different was not me in a real sense. And it, it was just kind of like this, huh. And so I began to feel compassion for these creatures that were suffering, these grief creatures, the anger creatures, the frustrated creatures. And I began to do something very similar to Tonglen, which I had done, by the way. Tonglen is a practice of, of breathing in dark emotions and breathing out loving kindness. So I kind of began to do this with these creatures. I started to feel their suffering, and I would then breathe it in. In other words, allowing it to be here fully, inviting it to be here fully. And then I would breathe out warmth and kindness towards these little creatures to, you know, see if I could help them in some way. And what I discovered was that they are transformed by love. By loving them, it's like I was freeing them. They were not clinging to me anymore. It's like I was allowing them to be what they truly are. And they were returning to the source. And for me, that seeing that was very, very powerful. And then I began to get kind of smug about it, and I think, well, I'm on to something here. I, I got it. Now, I'm, now, whenever I have this grief, you see, all I have to do is like send it love and compassion. But you see, that's not love and compassion. That's self-centeredness. And so I suddenly was unable to do this practice at all, and I suffered a lot. And this went on for weeks. And then one day when it was especially powerful, and I was overwhelmed, suddenly I noticed the creatures again. That they really, it's genuine. It's not just some story. It's not that I'm trying to feel better. I actually recognize their suffering. And in that recognition, I am, I am their benefactor. I am helping them. It's like if you have a small child that's crying and lost, and they come up to you and they're crying and they're upset, and you just allow them to be there and you hug them, you hold them. It's like with your attention in this practice, you're allowing them to be there, you're holding them in your awareness. And, you know, they're no longer upset. They're, you're, you're, do, you're giving them exactly what they need. And they're freed in that. They become freed. So this was like a huge breakthrough for me. And you see... These creatures are like little, they're like little demons. Just like Milarepa experienced. And I, you know, I had read Milarepa before this, the stories about him, but I never really took it seriously. But it's funny, and that was before this experience with grief. Then 
you know, some months after I had been doing this practice, I found a text that described Milarepa and his practice. And Milarepa was a Tibetan sage, but on his path, he had a lot of difficulty with demons, emotions, but he referred to them as demons. And as the story goes, he was doing his practices and he moved into a cave high in the Himalayas. But he discovered that the cave was, was full of demons. Now, this is a metaphor because the cave is, is, is Milarepa himself. And the demons are his own emotions. And when he got into this cave in the Himalayas and started sitting, suddenly he was overwhelmed by these demons. So initially he tried to subdue them. He tried to subdue them and he realized this isn't working. They're just getting crazier and crazier. And then he looked at his own actions and he realized this is actually violent. I'm actually perpetrating violence on these guys, expecting them to leave. And so he then began to send them love and compassion. And when he did that, and he started to do this, this kindness thing towards them, half of them left. But there were still another half that were still there. And so then he invited them, the ones that remained, to stay as long as you like. And with that, all the rest of them left except for one. <laughs> and the one that was left was a particularly difficult one with big teeth. They always use these metaphors to describe this, but big teeth and very difficult. And he tried everything with love and kindness and nothing worked. So finally what he did was he went up to the demon and he put his head in its mouth. And almost instantly, that demon vanished. And so this is all metaphorical, of course. It's basically realizing that if you're not genuine in your surrender, if you're not genuine, then you're, you're, you're basically stuck with what you have. You really, it's really about letting go of your attachments to things being any particular way at some point. When you're experiencing horrible emotions, they have already taken your life. You can't really escape them. And any attempt to escape them just reifies them, makes them more real. So really, it's a matter of laying down at their feet and giving yourself to them. And you know, when I read this, I realized that that's exactly what was forced in my case. I didn't really have a choice about it. It's just the way it had to be. And that's what I came to after trying all of these other things that didn't work. Um, any questions about any of that so far? It's a little crazy. Um, not, the, not the normal kind of talk. But how, do you, how do you, when you say you just lay down at their feet or put your head in their mouth, it, yes. it's not like a volitional thing, is it? I mean, it's, it a, it's a giving up. A giving it's up. really a giving up. It's sort of like you, you recognize that there ain't, there ain't nothing you can do. You can't escape. And so I remember having the feelings and the thoughts, it's over. I, this owns me, and I can't escape it. And so I'm not going to try anymore to get away. It's like, it's like you've been given a death sentence. You've been... You've been told that you have a terminal illness and you're dying. And there ain't nothing to do at that point. You realize there ain't nothing. So right there, you are surrendered. But it, you see, there's that little gray area because the mind is maybe still going, yeah, but, but I could probably find something that would fix this. Yeah, it certainly does do that. Yeah, but you see, once you come to the point where you just see, it, it, it's over then you're surrendered. And that's really what the, the spiritual path is really about. <laughs> I mean, ultimately, you discover that all of your attempts to attain enlightenment are futile. You can't attain anything because you already are 
what you're seeking. But what, you can't know that and you can't make a volitional choice to stop seeking, you know. So you keep doing it. And it's okay. Because it has to exhaust itself. Let me go on here because I had another, another example. And this was in October of 2004. And I was on a retreat at Cloud Mountain Retreat Center in, in Castle Rock, Washington with the Center for Sacred Sciences. And Joel was officiating at the retreat. At the end of, somewhere midway on the retreat, a nine-day retreat, I, I got up at the end of the day, and we had been doing spacious awareness practice, and there was clearly no self. And this is something that happens when you do these practices. There is no self. You discover there's no self. And it comes and goes. And so I, I got up from my uh, practice and walked out and went to my room and when I opened the door to my room there was a creature on my bed and it was really weird because when I saw it on my bed the whole room seemed to just like light up as a you know for as a as a medical person at the time you know working as a as a critical care nurse for years and years I afterwards I thought, well, I had like an adrenaline reaction, and that's because that causes your eye, your pupils to dilate, and the room just brightened up for a moment. And when it did that, I could see this creature was had like big eyes, and it had like beads and robes, and and it was just weird because the whole room was like glistening with artifacts and it was like being in an Egyptian cave. I mean, it was really that weird. And this all took place over just a couple of, just a brief period of time. And then, and then the, the, the creature began to speak and it was like in, I don't know, like Swahili or something. <laughs> and, and I was just, and then all of a sudden I realized Oh, it's just, that's that's Abdullah, and, and I'm in his room, and so I I just kind of like and I and I closed the door, but then I had to look, open it up again, and then from that moment on, everything, everything was totally different. I, I was experiencing space in, the, in a way that I have never experienced space. Things were rising in space. Things were, were kind of like radiances of being, like light. And I walked to my room, which is one door down. <laughs> and I went in and I sat on the bed. And I can't tell you how much time passed. It was just, who knows? It could have been hours, it could have been minutes. I have no idea. And then at some point, a little thought came up. And thoughts at that point were really little. I mean, they were so, so almost nothing. But a little thought came up, like a little moth, you know. <laughs> and, and it said, you should go to sleep. <laughs> and so I lay down on my bed and I went to sleep and during the entire night I was awake it was like I was sleeping but I was aware fully aware and then in the morning I got up and it was the same and then I walked over to talk to Joel to ask him what's going on Joel <laughs> <laughs> And things have not been the same since. Although, I will say that that initial period of spaciousness that I experienced, gradually it died down. Although, I still see the space. And you do too. But in my case, I am no longer obliterating it. It's obviously everywhere. And it is the nature of what this is. And everything that is arising is arising as a manifestation of that space. So anyway, so this is a great example of, of a demon having a very powerful effect. 
And there are lots of ways of talking about how that effect was created and what transpired. And But to tell you the truth, in the moment that it happened, it was a... As far as I can tell, it was just benevolence of a of a deity, of a of a creature, a demon, and it was a very wonderful, helpful moment. A demon or an angel? Ah, they're all the same. You see, this is the way you discover the demons and the angels. They're only different. They're just they're they're imaginary distinctions between, and and you begin to see, it's all that. We see that our own our own form is is really a demon angel right here. I mean, we start to see it's an emanation. We start to see it's coming into being now. It doesn't, you know. We have all of our stories about my biology and this, that, and the other thing. But as we look closely, we start to realize that all of these are thoughts and beliefs that are being superimposed on something. And we have no idea what that is. We can't know because what this is, is non-dual. It's not, it's not a thing. It's not a thought. It's not an idea. And so as you look at anything, like if you look at um, this gong, we see a gong. It looks like a gong. But we can notice that there is something being superimposed on it, and even when I use the word it, I'm referring to a thing here. But there is no thing apart from the name and the perception. So this is something that we discover through practice. And it, it sounds lofty and really weird, but as we settle into practices, we start actually recognizing the nature of our experience. We actually see, which is very interesting. You know, because our mind, we're doing battle with our minds for a while because our minds are just so darn certain about everything. And then we start looking at thought and we realize thought is just this transient, passing, conditioned phenomena. And, and if you ever look at a thought, you realize, well, it has no real existence. It's come, it arises as, an, as a what? I mean, look in your own mind. What do you think it is? But yet, that, that nothing has such great power, if you look around. Anyway. So we create our demons and things. Yes, yes, yes. But you see, these are just words. It's like, it's like I hate to use this again, but <clears throat> this is a hand, right? We say this is a hand. We could say it's an angel. We could say it's a demon. We could say it's anything. But those are all names for something. What? What is this in actuality? What is it? Well, if we say it's its name, well, what's beneath the name? What is this prior to naming? And, you know, at first when we hear a teaching like this, it just sounds like the guy that's giving the teaching is an idiot. But as you look, you realize that all names and perceptions are really a kind of a veil to what is actually here. And you begin to see nakedly that what is here is not, uh, it's not available to the thinking mind. It's not a concept. And so we use concept because we're just glued to the concept of this being something. We can't let it go. But as we do practices, we see this is actually transient and passing in every moment. Just like any sensation is arising and passing moment by moment. When we see that, we realize it's not a thing. And that's the beginning of a whole... Um, process of falling down the rabbit hole. We start realizing that we don't actually know what anything is. I, not, that, not that we're throwing, or throwing out the conventional world, because we're, we're, we love the conventional manifest forms, and we want to be able to function within it. We don't want to become idiots within the conventional world. But we just want to see what is the nature of 
all of the stuff that's arising in the conventional world. And we, we discover when we pay attention, we can discover its true nature. So it's not an angel. It's not a demon. It's not anything that you can think it is. The value of angels and demons, however, is that they become a kind of a window because they are different from what our conditioning tells us about the nature of the world. Suddenly there is this being that defies all of our ideas of what is real. And it breaks us out of our patterning. It breaks us out of our ideas. And in a sense frees us to notice that everything else is actually just as crazy as the demon or the, or the angel. It shows us something of the nature of reality that we could not see because we were locked into our, our um, what is it, um, conditioning of, of uh, ideas about everything. So, so then we can stop judging, judging and start accepting. Well, that's what it's really about. And what does that really mean? That means... Loving, rather than pushing things away, we are allowing things, and even things we don't like, and even things that we think are horrible, it doesn't mean that we don't act to do the right thing in the world, but we we want to be aware of our own anger, our own resistance, our own ways of trying to feel better within the story of I, and to actually be loving in our relationship with others and, and circumstances. Okay. Now, let me just read you this quote from St. Gregory of Sinai. And he's talking about how things like demons and angels can actually be a problem for us, especially at certain points along the way. Once you are in a position of clarity, any time your mind starts going off on what, you know, some kind of an angel or a demon, they become an obstacle. And here's what he says to St. Gregory of Sinai. If you are truly practicing silence, hoping to be with God, and you see something either sensory or spiritual, within or without, be it even the image of Christ, or of an angel, or some saint, or if an imaginary light pervades your mind, in no way accept it. The mind has in itself a natural power of dreaming and can easily build fantastic images of what it desires in those who do not apprehensively pay attention and so causes themselves harm. Memories, too, of good and bad things will often suddenly imprint their images on the mind and thus entice it to dreaming. (laughs) Then the man to whom this happens becomes a dreamer instead of a hesse chest. (laughs) One who rests in stillness. Therefore, beware and avoid being enticed into believing something, however good it may be, without questioning the experienced and making thorough investigation, and then you will suffer no harm. Always be displeased with such images and keep your mind colorless, formless, and imageless. In other words, angels and demons have their place, but when you get it to this point, the higher levels of practice, you can let them go. At some point. Of course, there's nothing really hard and fast here because there are times... <laughs> there are times... You know, we, we, it's like the spiritual path is funny because you, you'll take a step forward and you, you feel like you've, you've really made some attainment here. And when, it's the moment that you have that thought you just drop back three steps. <laughs> and so and and so a practice that maybe you had abandoned before because it seemed to be remedial for you suddenly becomes a great help once again. So the path is not some kind of linear process. It's really a process of 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 really like we were saying earlier, paying attention to what's going on. 
being discerning, and not just buying the storyline. And as we begin to see through the process of discernment, we see that in all of our experience, like I was saying earlier, everything is a divine self-disclosure as the Sufis would describe it. Everything is kind of a radiance of the divine coming into being in this moment. But if we get hung up on the display, hung up on the angel or the demon, and we just fixate on it and make a story out of it, then we are veiled from the truth. And so, again, here is another teacher. This is a Sufi, Ibn Arabi. And he says, the perfect Gnostic recognizes Allah in every form in which he discloses himself and in every form which he descends. Believers recognize him only in the form of their own beliefs and deny him when he discloses himself in another form. The believer ties himself to his unbelief and denies the belief of the true. So it's just like with the hand. If we believe this is a hand, we can never see what is actually here. A tree. You look at a tree. When you're walking in the forest, you can see. You don't know what this is. It's, it's magic. But when you put your labels and your storage, you know, if you're a logger and you're looking at the trees, you're going, yeah, that one looks like a, that'd be a good one. Cut that one down. You know, that, it's like you, you, you know, the, the, the grocer only sees the money and the exchange. They don't see the beauty of what's here. So, the final quote for you is this. This is from Zen Master Singstan. And he says, if the mind makes no discriminations, in other words, holds no beliefs, the 10,000 things are as they are of single essence. To understand the mystery of this one essence is to be released from all entanglements. When all things are seen equally, the timeless self-essence is reached. And that's... I hope that answered the question. (laughs) (laughs) Any questions or comments? Yes, Wesley. Um, But the question is, who is it that's being discerning? Because the ego is delighted to be the discerner. You know, oh yeah, I'll judge these for you. Yeah, no, I don't think that one's so good. You better leave that inside. But and it seems like the discerning needs to be done deeper, like by being or by truth or by that which is always here or by hereness itself. We point to these things and we talk about how at certain points along the way on the path. We have to be very discerning. And then at other points along the way on the path, we discover, well, we need to just let it all be. And then maybe at another point on the path, we realize, once again, I have to be discerning. And so it's stage-specific, depending on where you are. And a lot of the time, you recognize when you're really open. When you're really open, anything can come in and you recognize it for what it truly is. Whereas other times when you're just not so sure about things, you need to rein it in a little bit and be um, more discriminating and notice how the mind wants to fool itself. So, so, but that's a good point though, Wesley, and I appreciate your bringing it up. Anybody else have any thoughts, sir? Yes. Um, years ago, I took a course called Journey into the Fire from a mystic, he was up in the San Juans, named David Spangler. And this is about demons. And David grew up in Morocco, which he calls the cultural crossroads of the world. And his parents took him out into the marketplace um, regularly. And he had these wild and wonderful dreams 
Um, and his parents encouraged him every morning to tell his dreams. And so he um, worked with his dreams from a very early age, very constantly. And he could see these spirits in the air or something. But when he got older, um, he decided that he needed to um, represent these emotions that he found inside in little figures outside. So he had a figure for anger, a figure for envy, one for pride, and so on and so on. And he had a whole big collection of these. He, well, he found them. He just sort of made it part of his life's work to look in little odd stores for these little funny figures. And then when he was, it's like Joel said, aha, my I see you, um, he would relate to these figures. He, and, he, and he talked to them in the, in the morning in, in his meditation uh, about which ones he had related to the previous day, which ones he had found inside. And he recommended that. And that sounds useful. Yeah, that sounds wonderful. Yeah, that, that's a, I've not heard of this guy, but that sounds, you know, it's funny because that's kind of what Tibetan Buddhism has done with the, with the, the five wisdom energies. They've mm -hmm. taken each one and they have a, they have a deity yeah. that represents each one. And, you know, by doing a practice like that, especially from a, a culture where maybe uh, demons are reified more mm -hmm. than in our culture, um, you really have something to work with there. Yeah. And maybe it's a good idea to work with it. But for a lot of people, we have these emotions. And if we can somehow become aware of them through a little icon, it helps us to kind of break away from our fixed identification with them. Mm -hmm. And then we begin to see them as they actually are when they come up in our experience. And we, we, we're actually seeing them rather than seeing them from the perspective of another emotion. So, for example, if you have some horrible um, anger comes up and then you see it and you don't like it, then you're, you're basically, the eyes that are seeing the anger are anger. So anger sees anger, and it basically is self-perpetuating. But when you just see anger nakedly, it starts to break that connection. That story of I, the, the identification in that moment with that anger is freed, and then that's when insights can happen. You see, oh, this is... This is actually, you know, like I was saying earlier, this is actually a creature that is suffering. Or however, I mean, there's a million ways of approaching it. That was what arose for me organically in my, in my experience. But anyway. A question for you, Todd. Yeah. Mary Song said to me this morning at the end of a conversation we had, uh, the story of I is a miracle. It is. It is a miracle. That's a question. Well, it is. <laughs> the story of everything, every manifestation that we experience is a miracle. The problem with the story of I seems to be that it is delusion. But in fact, it is actually the source to awakening. Because the story of I is suffering. And we suffer as long as we identify with self then we are isolating and we are alone. And we feel that and it defines our actions. It defines everything that we do. And so that movement of sorrow, that those emotions, you see, they are driving attention to find happiness. And so we continue to struggle trying to find happiness in worldly things. We try to find some way to resolve it but everything that we grab onto is impermanent and passing. And so eventually we begin to look deeper and we come to things like this. We come to meditation practices. We come to prayer practices. 
and we start to look more deeply, and then we find, we start to realize that which we are seeking is our own being on some level. And we start to open ourselves to this in whatever way we can, through practices, meditation, chanting, um, just anything that opens our attention. And in the process, we begin to discover the reality that we are, that which we have always been seeking our whole life. Every time we've wanted anything in order to be happy, what we have really wanted is God, is the divine, the, the, the purity of what we are. And the more we open in that direction, the more we actually discover that. It takes a while, and sometimes it's very daunting, and we'll, as I said before, sometimes we take a step forward take, and end up taking three steps back. But if we just are persistent with the process and we keep looking at that North Star that's guiding us, gradually it starts to open. So I think we're, I think we're out of time here. All right, well, till we meet again, peace to you all.